much scrolling for June 27th, 2023. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Southern Chip Hessenblum. And I'm Pam Bedore. Look at that. Pam is here. It is the end of the month. Time for us to talk about some literature. And we've got some movies and some uh, convention talk this week. Convention. Welcome to convention talk. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. <laughs> film at 11. Reasons to our film at 11, our movie of the week, Chip. You went to the movie theater and saw the latest Wes Anderson movie, Asteroid City. Tell us all about that one. Asteroid City, Steve. Have you been watching the trailers for this? I have seen uh, commercials for this. I don't know that I've actually clicked on a trailer for Asteroid City. I know through the grapevine this is a Wes Anderson movie, maybe the most Wes Anderson-y movie of all time. And definitely that is exactly what it is, the most Wes Anderson movie that you can imagine. So a lot of style, a lot of beautiful colors, certainly fonts and everything seems to be in place. Um, but it also is, for, for a certain demographic, very confusing. And in fact, this film, that is one of the messages that it has, is that as you're going through it, you're not finding connection to anything. Hmm. Um, eventually, the actor kind of walks off stage or walks out of the movie and says, hey, I don't understand. And I think that is the message because the playwright, the person who is his acting coach, eventually comes back and says, well, you know, we don't understand everything all the time. Um, and I think at some point, as you mature, you get more comfortable living in the chaos of not knowing everything. And I'm not sure if that's the message of the film, but I do think that a lot of people will leave this film unsatisfied because they're just not going to feel like they were, um, they, they get the message of the movie. Uh, I am kind of on the fence on it. I, I thought it was fine. I thought the delivery was great. It certainly looks like beautiful as far as this film. He picks interesting mu uh, music. Uh, I'll say 60 out of 100, but not for everybody. So is this theater of the absurd? Is this waiting for Godot for 2023? I'm not really sure if that's the case. I, I do think that this is an ultimate rec recognition that we can't know everything. Um, and we live in chaos all the time. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you just need to be comfortable with that feeling, just recognizing that, um, listen, um, things can be unclear, things can be chaotic, and you can still function in that. Um, you spend your youth trying to organize things. But as you mature, you just recognize that, you know, things happen over in Russia, you have no control over um, things happen elsewhere that you have no control over and they could impact you. I love how you said that, Chip. And I feel like I wonder if our young people today just accept the chaos in a way that we maybe struggled with. I think that idea of your youth being spent trying to organize the world. I don't know if young people today are really doing that or if they're just living with the absurdity and the complexity sort of from the start. That's theater of the absurd. That is that is hmm. the message of waiting for Godot is is just go with it. No hard feelings. Oh, sorry, that's the next movie, isn't it? <laughs> Chip, you also Oh, I have hard feelings. No hard feelings. Tell us about this one. 
In fact, that fits very well in Pam's comment to this film, which is a raunchy teen comedy. And uh, it stars Ferris Bueller, Steve. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> Ferris has grown up now, and uh, he has a son of his own. And his son has not um, experienced the ways of women. So our, our premise is that um, they're going to hire a lady who needs an automobile to help him uh, grow up between high school and college. Is this from and 1994? Certainly sounds like it, doesn't it? <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> It's supposed to be a shock comedy. We had a full audience for this. Everyone left very happy. They laughed when they were supposed to laugh. Um, but I think the most important, and this is, um, Jennifer Lawrence is is a wonderful, wonderful actor. Uh, and I enjoy her very much. I, I, I hope she finds different types of parts, although she's very shocking and fun in this. There's a fight scene on the beach where she's nude, and it's hilarious. Um, but... I think the most important scene in this was basically where they were at a party and it's Gen Z. This is the generation going into college. Our kids are Gen Z mm -hmm. and Jennifer Lawrence's character says something that sounds like it could be homophobic. And the children, the young people, let's say the young people immediately go, you know, you think they're going to laugh or whatever. And they're like, wait a minute. They're very accepting of everyone's past in life. They they were like, well, could you say this again in front of this phone? They're basically there to document like how people can't accept it. Young people today, they are mature on so many areas. They're very, very smart. They're very savvy. They may not have all the wisdom that we have, and certainly they um the ultimate message of this is the young people are asking for the opportunity to make mistakes hmm. um, because they feel, in fact, that's the message of the movie that the parents didn't allow their children to fail enough, but this party and the inter interactions that go on that, that the kids are locked in the bedroom, but they're going through a VR experience where they're kind of learning something together. Um, they're talking, they're communicating all these other things. Anyway, Gen Z is different from your past generations. The raunchiness of your gen your generation's comedy is not necessarily the raunchiness of today's generation. I um I say fifty out of a hundred on this. If you get sucked into watching this, I think you're gonna be okay. Um, but certainly not as shocking or as as funny as I would have liked. You also got to see the family movie of the week. This is Elemental. This is the latest Pixar movie. So um, let me go ahead and start by saying this is uh, not particularly a strong film. Pixar seems to have lost some of its um, uh, how bright it was at one time. But it is a, a reasonable film. If you're a child and you're in this film, if you're a parent, certainly you're going to enjoy seeing this. I think what is so amazing about this film is that you think animation is really good now. Watch this film. You will see cutting-edge, reality-altering animation truly we are almost at matrix level like it is unbelievable so i don't know if there was just little parts of this movie where i, I caught glimpses of what cutting edge animation is but boy it is amazing i'll say 50 out of 100 this is a story about uh immigration it's about how uh different cultures kind of come together and then you know how children really don't care 
they're going to find their way anyway. But that seems to be a theme. <laughs> it does seem to be a theme right there. I got a chance to see the documentary Doctor Who Am I. I've been wanting to see this for a very long time. I missed out on seeing it at our Doctor Who convention here in Chicago and finally got a chance to download it this week. This is the story of a Doctor Who screenwriter who wrote a screenplay for the Doctor Who movie in 1996. And uh, he's, he's been reluctant to be dragged into the American convention scene with the doctor who fans as as uh as we kind of tend to be a little bit ravenous as fans of doctor who here in america and this documentary goes to the heart of that how are the american fans of this british show different from the british fans the british fans are very quiet and very unhappy with this program all the time. The American fans are very loud and very happy. So this man who's been a part of the Doctor Who universe for a quarter century really feels like an outsider and doesn't know the love that we have for his work because he wrote for Doctor Who. And he discovers that through several trips to several different conventions in the Doctor Who convention circuit. He finds out how family we are and how happy we are. Come and be a part of the Doctor Who universe. So this is a story of his journey to the United States, just mm-hmm. to, to different conventions. Yes. And they did tell him that the convention in Chicago takes place uh, on Black Friday, right? On Doctor Who's birthday. Yes. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, yes, they did. This is a great documentary. It's a great storytelling narrative documentary. I love storytelling in a factual context like a documentary. I, this is not, you know, this happened, then that happened, then that happened. This is not that. This is a great turn of character. I recommend Doctor Who Am I, even if you are not a Doctor Who fan, even if you're just a loud American. Chip, you went to the theater this week in our... Did you say the theater, Steve? Did you say theater? Our Adventures in the Black Box segment. You saw the next play in your D-Pack season. This is six. When one goes to the theater, Steve, one expects girl power. And that's <laughs> what we got. The whole, season. the whole season of girl power this year, huh? Well, we got six the musical this time, Steve. Now I got the North American tour, and this is the story of the, the six wives of Henry VIII. And as I walked in, I was singing, I'm Henry VIII, I am. Henry VIII, I am. <laughs> Second verse, same as the first. And then Patrick Swayze slapped you from behind the grave. <laughs> and um, as, as um, my mother was sitting beside me, she said, I don't see that song in this in this musical. So it wasn't in the musical, just so you know, if you're this expecting This is a very different take on the idea of Henry VIII and his six wives, huh? That's right. It's um, There's there's no intermission. And um, I don't know if you know this, but it was p- portrayed as a concert. And that's what it is. This is a concert. It's a theme concert. And the six wives come out and they say, you're going to vote for who's the best, best of the wives. Because some wives are better known than others. Hmm. 
and they each sing their song, and the the uh, other five serve as backup. So it's like a um, a girl group, you know, like um, Spice Girls, like um, uh, In Vogue, something like that. Okay, they do a great job. Each of the songs are fine. I can understand why after every song, everybody cheers, and I mean, this was an entire audience of cheers. Now we get a little bit of that with um, some musicals where the you know a special number, but after every song, everybody's like clapping, yeah, like a concert. They're all dressed up like it's a um, I don't know a pop princess concert too. They have wonderful costumes. The smoke is in the air because they have the smoke in the air, and um, ultimately they come to the realization because we're, we're we've got the last of the singers. The one that survived, the one Henry VIII wife that wasn't beheaded. She goes, um, no one remembers all the other Henry's wives. Why do they remember us? And we should stick together. And they're like, yeah, and we should sing a song. Yeah. And they sing a song. And everybody claps because everybody's really happy that they were like, girl power. And then um, they go, did you guys really enjoy that? Yeah, let's sing one more song. All right. And they sing a song and everybody claps and everybody stands up afterwards. And they go, that was a lot of fun. Wow. And we all exit and go home and back to our lives. So this is truly a concert. I think that the people there really enjoyed themselves a whole bunch. All the songs are wonderful. And just think of it like a, a pop princess type of um, or pop queen type of um of musical and you'll have a great time and my kids absolutely love the music for this and it's it's actually really great i have some of these um songs on my like running playlist and one of the things that i really love is i mean just like hamilton you know this brings kids an interest in history in a really different sort of creative way my favorite one is don't lose your head as she talks through like how she met the king, she she structures it based on like today's technology. So they message a lot. There's like LOLs. Um, he gets all gel. And it really speaks to the story, right? The power of story, something that the three of us have talked about a million times. That idea that these stories, whether you translate them into like text speak or read the diaries that were written at the time, they're still great stories. But that's a great point. Would this musical exist without Hamilton? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't I, think so either. I agree. And, and, and this is a very different presentation than Hamilton. Mm -hmm. I, I think Hamilton is a musical for the ages. And I think this is a musical maybe for the time. Because the music is very modern music, right? 100%. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sure. So these are, these are pop standards written into um a musical form and just to connect them so this this could easily have been performed i don't know at disney you know you know we do two songs or something like that okay. uh i'm not i'm not trying to demean it I'm, I'm saying that this certainly if you are going to write something and have it resonate you want it to be um you want people to go to it and enjoy it it is speaking to today's person and it's very, very fun. But the I think the project behind this kind of, you know, sort of new literary musical, historical literary musical, is really the, the idea of telling stories that we don't usually hear. So this is the story, not of Henry, 
but of these women, these incredible women who had really interesting lives and who were part of these social structures and expectations um, that, that limited their choices. And it's really about, you know, looking at who's not usually represented in history. And that's mm-hmm. why I think, you know, that's like, that's why, yeah, Hamilton really paves the way for a lot of incredibly powerful new musicals that, that kind of question the whole meta narrative of history. Mm-hmm. I also think that this is the type of musical that's written that, you know, I don't know how many traveling people, but you had a band, you had four mm-hmm. people, you had the, the um, six um wives on stage you know you've got what do you got 10 people that are part of this this is um written for the economy of a traveling show too and that's not to demean it it's just at some point you've got to make the numbers Mm -hmm. to, to make these things work and bringing out a musical with i don't know 50 cast members i mean it may only be able to play in broadway we're in a place that you can get a large audience. This is a traveling show. There you go. Good. Pam, you went to uh, the NEH Institute at Sonoma State University and learned all about human slash nature and exploration of place, stories, and climate futurism. Boy, I think this might have been a good convention for you, Pam. Oh, my goodness. I thought about you guys so many times while I was at this convention. So I shouldn't say convention. It's um. So this is an NEH, which is the National Endowment for the Humanities Funded Institute. And this is for uh, middle school and high school teachers. It's a professional development opportunity. And um, so it's quite a competitive program. NEH funds a bunch of these institutes each year. And I was asked to be a visiting professor at this specific institute, which uses apocalyptic literature in designing climate crisis curriculum. So kind of my jam. So <laughs> that is wow that is great. it's so specific right That's <laughs> right. the world is going to end who should we who should we invite who should we call okay well. so you guys when i was when i was asked to do this oh my goodness like a year and a half ago when they were applying for the grant would you be on it and then when they got the grant um i was like wow this is going to be so interesting it was life altering wow this was an incredible experience so there's 30 people, the 25 instructors, 25 K to 12 folks, and then five of us from the university side of things. And we were really talking hardcore, like how do we prepare students for the climate crisis? And what are, are there so many facets of thinking and talking about this large existential dread that sort of sits over our heads these days? And again, this is something that the three of us have talked about so many times and it's such an intergenerational project right and i really felt like this felt like a k to phd conversation and it made me realize how much i know how much i value you guys but i really felt so excited that i do talk to you guys all the time and have that feeling of like how we work with students at different stages of their development as they're thinking through eco-anxiety generalized anxiety as they're they use so much more experiential learning in the k-12 system than we do at the university but we've got to do more of that that's the way things stick right and steve obviously you know this and i sort of know it but this really cemented for me the importance um there's this amazing teacher 
Eric Gordon, who does this Literacy Unbound project where he uses all of this creative, but also like drama techniques to really get students engaged and involved in imagining futures. Look at that, Steve. We are, we are the K to through 12 people. K through years. PhD. That's, that's what we right. need to be thinking. It's K through PhD. But that's, no, but I mean, <laughs> you always laugh, Chip, but I'm the so... The simpletons. We are the simpletons. I'm so earnest here that we really like, this is just such a topic for our times that sure. we talk about all the time without like pausing to think of the importance of it. And, and the way to teach all of these large ideas is so different in a kindergarten versus a middle school versus a high school versus versus you at the college level but yeah putting the kids into these ways of thinking is important and i and i i'm glad to hear that you got that vision of what we do on the lower education level to get kids involved, to get kids engaged. Because yeah, I think it's coming to you at the college level. I think the way kids learn has changed over the last two decades of my career. And the way that they are going to learn when they get to college is going to be different when they get there. They have certainly a much more advanced set of skills. Mm -hmm. Now, they may not be better writers or something like that in previous generations, no, but they, they have, have, but they've been exposed to so much more material. And because of that, they can, they have the ability to think at a, a different level mm -hmm. than previous generations have been able to think. So I, I, that's a very interesting premise that yes, they've been through I don't know, a, th a thousand lives um, yeah. through different media. Mm -hmm. um, how do you connect with them? And then how do they focus on something that, that you know, they want to study? And how does yep. this fit into it? How does the, you know, the other parts of it fit into it? So tell us a little bit about some of the uh, literature that got discussed. Well, so we did, th we were doing three books in this two week institute that everyone read the same three books. And then people talked about all kinds of other books that they like to read and teach. You guys, Ministry for the Future was very, very popular amongst this group. <laughs> <laughs> that made me think of you as well. But the three, the three novels that everybody read were Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. The organizer sent a copy of Parable of the Talents, which is book two of that series. Um, now, you guys know I'm like a huge Octavia Butler fan mm -hmm. and I guess scholar too. Like I've written about her several times. And I met this amazing woman who was in the workshop, who's a librarian at the middle school where Octavia Butler went to middle school. Wow. And really? Yes. And so they recently renamed the middle school, the Octavia Butler Magnet School. And um, she's a reader at the Huntington. And I mean, there's the people I met at this at this um, institute. I'm going to 100% keep in touch with. They're incredible folks. Um, we also got M.T. Anderson's feed, which I believe we have talked about on this very program. Five we certainly did. Ago. Yeah, we did. That was a great that was a great book. That's a good summer read for those looking for summer reads. So this wonderful professor from IUPUI, Megan Musgrave, she led the discussion. I did Butler. She did the discussion on M.T. Anderson's feed. And she had this awesome exercise where we were in a pretty big room with like great acoustics. She had each of us pick up our phone, turn our volume to full and just play whatever audio was 
was there. It could be a movie, music, a podcast, whatever you were listening to. And she put on a timer and we had to sit in that noise for five minutes wow. because that's what the feed is, right? Like uh, in MT Anderson's book, people are just mm-hmm. the feed, the feed, the feed. So we did this for five minutes. Then we did two minutes of complete silence. And then we did journaling and then we talked and uh, you guys, that noise, that total noise pollution didn't bother me a bit. I found it lovely. Walked around, had several conversations with people. I checked in whatever everyone was listening to. It didn't bother me. Wow. And it was so funny because in the room, a bunch of people were like, that was the most horrifying, overwhelming thing ever, which is what I thought when she explained the exercise. And then a bunch of us were like, hey, that was kind of stimulating and fun. Wow. I don't know what to do with that. I, but it was really like crazy. I get so bothered by TikTok when when somebody in the room with me is is experiencing TikTok. And I don't say watching because they're not always watching. And mm-hmm. I don't say listening because they're not always listening. <laughs> but they're experiencing TikTok. Right. And I am just being bombarded by the noise of this creation, the blipverts that is TikTok. I, we, have, we have very different brains, you and I, Pam. Steve, I, I thought I would be totally on the overwhelmed side. I was shocked by how perfectly pleasant it was. So I could go back and forth on this because I put on music while I'm working. And many times I'm putting on meditation music or okay. um, uh, chimes or something of that nature that's sort of um, non yeah, maybe maybe some light jazz, light classical, something of that nature, something that's not requiring full attention. Okay. There are times where I'll put on pop music, stuff like that. And it's too much. Like it's, there's too much activity for me to concentrate. And so what my point being on that is, and I put those on very low, like it's, you could hear it, but you can't really hear it, hear it. And I can get overwhelmed when we're reading MT Anderson's feed and recognizing this is going on around the kids. What, Ultimately, I guess one of the, the messages of feed was um, you're, you're so busy paying attention to five or 50 things at once that you're very, it's very difficult to focus on the moment with the people, the humans in front of you, even when bad things are happening, even when you're supposed to be present, even then it's like, oh, there's a sale on a shirt. I should probably pick that up. Um I, I just, that, that sounds like such a fascinating exercise because do we become used to that noise? Does, does um, a person who grows up in the city environment, a loud city environment, if they went out to Montana or um, some remote area, do they have a difficult time adjusting to the calmness? Hmm. We even crave the little dopamine hit we get every time we change our attention, right? Wow. So, so yeah. yeah. So anyway, just an incredible experience. And I just wanted to both like tell you guys how exciting it is to think of, I mean, these these like middle school, high school teachers, other professors, like everyone's just so collaborative. It just felt like you know, okay, so the climate crisis could lead to our very near extinction, or it could lead to like a real collaborative project where people really come together. I mean, I don't know, it left me with a lot of optimism and hope, not because of the content of what we talked about, but because of how amazing the people were. 
What type of topics did you go deeply into? So we talked a lot about eco-anxiety, right? We talked a lot about AI because we're teachers and we have to be thinking about where that's going. Um, And then we also talked about like for each book, what some of the key themes were. So like in the Butler novel, we talked about hyper empathy, empathy, anxiety, apathy, how those kind of turn. We talked about generational divisions, this idea of as middle-aged people, when we look at our kids, how do we address the fact that we haven't done all that much about the climate crisis yet? We talked about different ways of knowing. The third book in the series, which was happening in week two, which I couldn't stay for, but was totally incredible. I heard um, The Marrow Thieves. This is indigenous ways of knowing, which is something absolutely we need to be thinking about, right? So, um, So yeah, so just a huge number of topics. A lot of the same topics the three of us talk about, you know, in terms of how do we know stuff? How do how do we live a good life? What are the how do we figure out what the right thing to do is? You oh, know, interesting. The normal stuff. Amazing. <laughs> and amazing. Steve, I'm just gonna say to you, my middle school teacher friend, that um I think that the institute was really a, a big success. And um the organizers are probably gonna apply again in two years. So um, this is a Sonoma State University, which was a lovely place to spend a couple weeks. Um, so yeah, so there might be an open call for people interested in thinking about the future and the climate crisis two years from now. Just saying, my dear middle school teacher friend. That sounds phenomenal. Sign me up. I, I would love to be in that room with those people thinking through how are we doing our job? What is education in 2023 is a question that we ask in school all day long. What are we doing? How are we helping our kids? Are we giving them what they need? That sounds like a, a great combination of all of those levels of people to get to the the heart of the answer and we had people from all around the country which was incredibly valuable not to mention energizing all right i'm done but thank you for letting me just talk a bit about that and how important you guys have been to me thinking about all these topics and if you want some connections to that you can go through our show notes and there's a link book it book it book it Book it, book it, book it, book it, book it. Brings us to our book it, our book of the week. The reason why Pam is here is it's the end of the month. Our fabulous, fantastic, phenomenal, fun, all sorts of F words, uh, book club that we come together at the end of every month. This month, it's Chip's turn to pick, and he chose for us a graphic novel called Concrete. Tell us about this one, Chip. Well, Concrete was released in the in the late 80s. It was um, released by Paul Chadwick, and it was um, released in floppy forms at that point, sort of comic books. It was a black and white story. So there was a black and white boom where people were putting different types of stories and releasing them through the, the comic shops who were booming at the time. Um, Paul Chadwick's real job, and, and certainly storytellers won, but he also worked as a storyboard artist. I can't remember. He may have worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, that may have been his movie. He was in um, a studio. The other person in his studio was Dave Stevens. He was the person who wrote and drew The Rocketeer. And um, if you've seen that movie from Disney, you, you're familiar with that story too. 
So anyway, Concrete is our story. We're getting volume one, a lot of short stories in this. And it looks like from my reading, we got the beginning of the part where I was hoping we would jump off because there is a part of this uh, story where he takes a very ecological um, point of, of view. Uh, he takes this um, these stories where he sort of is, is addressing something that was important of the time. And what I was hoping to do is um, make a contrast uh, between what we thought back then was the important issues and what, you know, what Pam spent an entire uh, two weeks discussing over it uh, with her uh, seminar that she went to with the, with the young people. Anyway, um, this is our story, Concrete Volume 1, Depths. So the story of concrete is the story of a man who is essentially concrete. He is a rock man and over seven feet tall, weighing over a thousand pounds. And, and how does he get through his day? That is the story here. Sort of a golem, right, Steve? Very much a golem. Very much. Uh, I, I kept thinking of the thing from the Fantastic Four, the rock superhero that is just impenetrable and and what could he do with this and paul chadwick goes into depths here <laughs> to, to <Yeah>. <laughs> of of what could a concrete man do and also how would he be seen by society i feel like that was a really major theme was like his presentation to the world and i loved I, I really loved the order because I'm going to say I'm such a total sucker for origin stories. So whenever I'm reading some sort of superhero, crazy mutant thing, I really want to know, is it aliens? Is it, you know, like a secret research lab? How did this happen? And I really like that we just we just start out. Oh, yeah, there's this guy concrete. Everybody knows about him. There's like this huge advertising campaign around him. And he's going to go save some miners. And you're like, what is this? What am I reading? Where does this guy come from? And like, is this a world with tons of interesting mutants who like are part of a superhero league? Is it just him? We just don't know anything. Tons. I got it. Ah, I didn't even catch that. <laughs> so you guys, um, I was so delighted, Chip, when you chose a graphic novel um, for, for this month, because I think I've mentioned to you guys, I'm teaching a graphic novel course in, in the fall, and I'm not a natural graphic novel reader. Um, it takes me so much longer to read a graphic novel. And I I was curious if, if you don't mind, I know, Chip, you are a natural graphic novel reader. What's your process? Like, do you, do you almost see it like a movie? Or how, how do you read? Like, All right. So Amazon or Comixology's guided view has helped me tremendously. Okay. Because, all right, so what we lose on a guided view is the artist has put together the story on a page. And by putting it together on a page, there is a process on where the characters look. If you're a great storyteller, it should be natural as far as where your eyes move and what the focus is and all that other fun. So the use of color can make that important. Guided View has taken that away. But what it has done is each panel becomes something that you move forward on. Yeah. And if I need to get through something quickly or I need to, like I'm feeling like I'm missing something, there are, there are things that can be missed. 
guided view really helps me. So let me give you an example of a book that's not in guided view. Um, there's a Charles B- uh, Burns book, and it only he only wants it re- released in paper. So you have to read the way that now Charles Burns is. Excuse me, Charles Burns is uh, the book is black hole. By the way, it is top of the line. It is the best. It is the type um, type of uh, story, and and that story is about um, young people. Ultimately, we're going to call it a venereal disease, but it changes the way they look, and they also get ostracized out of uh, they set up a camp outside of the town, where when they get changed. They kind of hang out. And then just basically how that kind of works out. Concrete um, is a story of a, a person who ultimately is this big golem of a person. They have their brain. Their body can do so much. But the limitations are that, you know, you need, what do you, you got fingers, but you can't type. I mean, what, what keyboard is going to hold you? So he needs help in so many other areas. And he becomes a scientific study, um, and the, the you know the, the push is is a, a scientific study or a military study. So you, you, know, you throw those types of things in. But I find that that through guided view, particularly if you have um, the ability to have a comic put through something like Comicsology, you can get through the material and it guides you through. You may miss something about the artist's intentions because you're not looking at the entire page, but um, I, I think that it work, works well. I, I suggested to you at one time, there's a short story called Master Race. And if you could just blow those up, and it's like three or four pages, it's a story of a guy that comes back from World War II who was a prisoner of war in a concentration camp and runs, to, runs into the um, guard that was the guard of him in this uh, concentration camp during World War II, and what would you do? And it is a masterful story. But just by looking at a few pages about what a master does at telling a story, you you understand the power of of graphics. Uh, it's, it's It's a different way of telling stories than just letters and numbers. And um, it can be very powerful. It's, it's like movies, uh, just a different medium to, to relay information. I generally just read the words. I do notice the pictures. The pictures do certainly tell the story. But generally, I am not a, a person who studies art. I don't feel like I have any art ability of my own. So I, I study the words. I am a word-based thinker. So that's where I concentrate when I'm reading and a graphic I think, Steve, novel. That's how I always. So when I read a graphic novel, I read all the words on the page, but then I have this like not a feeling, a knowledge that I'm missing things. <laughs> so this is like I I just like experience graphic novels with this huge wave of FOMO. I know that I'm missing all of these things, and then I'll like really take a look at the images and try to so. I would say it takes me about twice as long to read a graphic novel as a regular novel. And people always say, oh, it's a graphic novel. You'll just breeze right through it. It's all pictures. And I'm like, no, it's all pictures. Like, that's why I'm so slow about it. There's so much there. Um, Yeah, I get that. By the way, I just love the drawing of concrete. 
he's like simultaneously so cute and so so like giant and terrifying i mean i feel like the way that he's drawn is awesome Paul Chadwick, once again, this is not the Jack Kirby power um, type of uh, storytelling where everything's like a bam and pow. This is very calming. I mean, he's just a massive rock of a person who gets in the back of a pickup truck and heads across town. Um, there's Paul works very hard to make him such a ma steep we're massive people right to make us to, to make I, I was us non-threatening how do you familiar. take the by the way you remember that um the reporter for uh the northwest herald and you know steve and i are i'm six five we're football size and this this man who was the reporter for northwest herald he um he had to be seven two seven three, and when he would shake your hand, I mean his hand was all the way around my hand. I mean, just he was concrete. He was just beyond uh, believable because of his size. Just a gentle giant. I remember talking to him all the time. He was just such a gentle man. And that is one of the issues that is brought up in this story is who is this person, even though they are this big, scary monster? Is he a monster? Is he a hero? Is he just a guy that got caught up in this thing? There's a, there's a lot of great character development in here. So our character is Ronald Lithgow, but I could easily see him being played by John Lithgow. <laughs> Wouldn't he? Like the author? I thought the same thing, Chip, and I loved it because the um, our female lead is uh, Maureen Vonnegut, and they were like, like the "Are you related to the author?" I was like, "Oh, it's asking us to do that with each character, right?" Every time, I know. every time she meets a new character, that's the first thing that comes up. Oh, Vonnegut, yeah, I know you. Oh, right. How about the assistant, the aide, not the secretary, and where he's he's got a novel and he's always got to tell oh you God. about his novel. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably about right. <laughs> and he fumbles out this story that immediately goes nowhere. But he just kind of, you know, it's, oh, I'm a novelist. Tell me about your novel. And they're like, oh, my goodness, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is very metafictional, right? Like, this is a story about stories. And all the way through, we find out that Ron Lithgow, Concrete, um, was a speechwriter for a senator. And so that's a very specific kind of storytelling, right? The mm -hmm. speeches um, that politicians make. And then we have our aspiring novelist. I feel like the word aspiring is important. We have Concrete's desire to be a hero. Like it's a very Don Quixote kind of story where he thinks through like all the different narratives that people tell. And he wants to be all of his heroes are people who were both adventurers and writers. And that's what he wants to be. And then we have the government that decides who this is going to be and how that spin is going to happen for this character in this world. It's it's a good thing, or I, I'm just going to mention, I think it's a good thing that he had the connection to Washington. He had a senator that he called because he could have easily just become a military tool. Right. Mm -hmm. we, we have taken you, we are now going to be studying you over and over and over, which is essentially what, what initially happened when he was discovered. 
And he makes the reference to E.T. there. He <laughs> actually goes ahead and says, yeah, I saw E.T. I'm not that cute. <laughs> but he's pretty cute for like a big chunk of rock. <laughs> I take that personally, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> so can I ask, like, of these issues, and this is a nice collection. Like, I like reading a bunch of small issues in, in like, a collected work. Um, which was your favorite? Probably going back to what you said already, the origin story, which is the what fourth one yeah. is yeah. is where we get the answer to the question, how did this happen? Is this a military thing? Is this an alien thing? How did this happen? And it's fascinating way that the the author has given us these are aliens they are taking living creatures and they are changing them and taking their bodies and they they say well this this one was a, a wild animal this one's a human this one was a deer was a third it was one a deer, deer a bear and two humans yeah very fascinating way that was revealed the other part about that story that's fascinating is each of the humans kind of chooses a different way to deal with their new situation. Yeah. And one of the questions that, because I was thinking, like, if I taught this, what would I ask? And I would be like, are you a Ron or a Michael? <laughs> 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 well, because I actually feel like this is a super important question in 2023 is like, what's the relationship between our minds and our bodies? Right. As mm -hmm. we make more and more advanced um, artificial intelligence, you know, there's two ways to think about artificial intelligence, that it's a totally mechanical thing that happens in silicone. Or like, what if we could download our brains into a machine, the kind of Ray Kurzweil idea? So this notion from like the late 80s of separating, so putting your brain into something, some sort of cyborg body, and this is like concrete, it's not as like fancy as some of the cyber bodies we have seen in other texts. But would you want to stay with your physical body like Michael does? Or would you be like, woo, I could go on an adventure in my giant stone body? Like, that's a really good question. That that would be a good story. Um, but I mean, that's so he's, he's given up so much to be in this body. It wasn't by his choice. But I mean, sex is not, you, you can't reproduce. Um, you, you're not, you're, you're, um, your relationships have to be cerebral um, because of the type of body you have. It, it takes away so much of what is natural, but it, the possibilities are like, I can go hike Mount Everest and not even think about it other than the activity of it. I can go to places that potentially other humans can't go because my body will protect right, me. the bottom of the ocean into sure. the mine, like all of these up Mount Everest, all these different places. But we quickly learned that he's not invulnerable. I mean, he can be hurt. So there is, there's that part of it too. So potentially he could be controlled in a, in a negative way. Well, and it's interesting because when they realize, I think that, so when they are initially taken, I, I just want to note that a lot of people, um, and I grew up on a farm, but I've been living in a city for so long, I get it. Um, there's a sort of fear or anxiety about camping. <laughs> like camping <laughs> both brings you back to nature, but it's also filled with dangers we don't understand as much as we once did, right? And so there's this kind of like, urban rural divide and i think it's very important that ron and michael 
We're not expert campers. They're totally afraid of a lot of things. And they even note, like, what if we get kidnapped by aliens, which is, of course, exactly what happens. And so <laughs> there's a sort of urban fantasy, right, about, like, the conspiracy of camping. Like, you're putting yourself in danger. Now, as, as we know, people who live in rural contexts feel the exact same way about the city, right? It's full of crime mm-hmm. and all sorts of terrible things. Dangerous, right? for sure. <laughs> so, yeah. There's people there. Right, exactly. Yeah, scary. So I think it's interesting that when they when they get captured, they at first they say this is very much of the time. It could be the Soviets. This is the Cold War, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> or it could be aliens. Gen X and our fear of Cold War <laughs> and the Soviets. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Right there. Uh huh. But then it's interesting that they are like you know they're in these big concrete bodies. So there's been some sort of brain transplant. They don't know how to think about it the way that I think 40 years later, we were kind of very used to that idea. But then when they see their original bodies, whoa, like that is the uncanny, right? The moment where you see your double and it's just impossible to process. And I think it's interesting that the way they process it in that fourth book is Michael says, Ron, I feel like I have to vomit, but I can't. It's some kind of ultimate violation, a permanent rape. Yeah. And that's so interesting because, you know, in the 80s, we didn't just throw around the word rape the way that we do today. And I don't mean throw around in a negative way, but I mean, like, we've really, this is a, this is a part, this is a type of behavior that is much, much more openly discussed today. Um, than it was in the 80s. And so that's a very powerful statement, this violation. And Ron does not feel the same way. Mm-hmm. I caught that very strongly. The The bodily autonomy yeah. that has been taken away from this character here and how he feels violated by what the aliens have chosen to do without his permission, uh, that's a very strong statement. And then it's interesting for Ron, he really, he's kind of like in a nerdy, wimpy body, but wanting adventure. And he's just, he's like, oh my God, I have perfect eyesight in this body. I'm so strong. I love it. He also has just gone through a very painful breakup. And so he's like, you know what? If I don't have to think about love and intimacy and all the things associated with sex, I'm fine with that. Now, that's mm-hmm. something that doesn't last forever after a breakup, but that, you know, readers will will very likely be like, oh, he's in that stage of a breakup. And you're right. It's it's very human what he's experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just thought that issue was excellent. Now, I personally really liked that it was the fourth issue and not the first issue because I like when people set up a world with a lot of confusing elements and then they start answering your elements later. Oh, you will love next month's book. Can I ask you, I'm sure I've asked you this before. Have you guys read Anne McCaffrey's um, Dragonlance series? Mm-mm. No. Okay. Nope. So what she does in that series that I think is incredible. And these were huge. This is from the same period. These were really big in the eighties and nineties. They're fantasy novels about like a world with, 
people and each person has like a connection to a specific dragon and they're really they're lovely books they're fantasy for the first three books and then the fourth book is science fiction explanation Hmm. of the human dragon connection and it's totally science and so that's just so delightful to me when you're moving through and then you get a reframe that asks you to rethink the whole beginning of a series. So I thought that was very, very well done in this one. I I think that stories that are able to do that, to give us a world and then later give us an explanation that, that is so satisfying works really well. And this one is, is one of those. So my favorite stories in, in this series beyond even this book were the ones like when he said, you know, I've got this body, I'm going to swim across the Atlantic and let's see if what it does. So it's basically, I don't know what the body can do. Let's try this out. And at the same time, you kind of learn a little bit about the ecology around you. You learn a little bit about um, just sort of what, what you don't know about an attempt to swim across the ocean. It's a way to reveal the area you're around, the circumstances you're around, along with going through an adventure. I'm glad that you brought us this book. This is definitely something that I would not have picked up. Ironically, our friend Mark Brett saw and picked up a couple of different issues of this at HeroesCon last weekend. Those interesting connections that that. we have, Pam, isn't that that something that there's always, there's always another connection. So you guys, when I was coming home from California, I got stuck in Charlotte overnight. Um, This is just the new normal for travel is you get to stay an extra 20 hours in some random city. It was Chicago last time. Um, Yes, it was. (laughs) But I got to stay in Charlotte overnight and I got to stand in a customer service line for just over three hours between 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. And I got chatting with this guy who does automation systems. And I asked him, like, if you were going to take down the electrical grid for a science fiction novel, would you do it by, like, miss, you know, would you do, like, terrorism? Would you do, like, you know, bad circuitry or whatever? And I had these options. And he starts, like, oh, what an interesting question. He starts thinking it through. And then this kid behind us is like, oh, my God, I just wrote a science fiction novel about that. Can I give you a copy? He pulls out a copy of his self-published novel, which looks great. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I look forward to doing so. And um, it's about this very topic. And I'm like, what are the odds? Like, I'm coming home from this incredibly vitalizing conference. I'm in a great mood at midnight standing in a customer service line. And I, like, meet this new author. Anyway. And just remember, Charlotte. just remember that she's asking this at an airport where you know, yeah. no one is listening. And she's that like, station how do I it. take down the grid? And well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, a science teacher of science fiction. This is a huge topic that we've talked about a million times. <laughs> and it was in Charlotte where Heroes Con was, where, where Chip happened to be and Mark Brett happened right, to be. The coincidences are just <laughs> stacking up here. The, the energy is there. It's brought us all together. That's right. So... What what other things do we need to talk about with this? Let's talk about, let's talk about the birthday party where um, <laughs> yes. Concrete gets uh, roped into going to some kid's birthday party and you realize it's a ruse. 
this is the the norm for food delivery people right now. The Instacart people and the Uber Eats people are promised a tip. They say, you go get me this food. I will give you $15 tip. And they go, yes, I will go do that. And then the people who put in that tip can change it at will and decide not to give that $15 tip. That's exactly what happens to Concrete here. He was promised a tip. He was promised. He was, he was promised a, uh, money, a huge amount of money, a huge amount of money that brought him to this house. She goes, "Oh yeah, uh, about that. That was a lie. I can't pay you, but the kids are here, and they would be really disappointed if you didn't play with them for a little while." And and she admits that she usually does that to other celebrities too, because they are in California and Southern California. And that question of celebrity is so well put together here. How does one use that that soapbox of celebrity? How important does that person become if they are well-known? And the government is creating this celebrity in this story. So, so in our story, Concrete arrives. The kids, they don't care he's a big rock. They're going to jump all over him anyway. And uh, that's, is that how that works, Chip? Do, do you show up to parties and kids are just constantly <laughs> jumping on you? Because that's exactly what happens to me. That's exactly what happens to me. The the adorable little kids like, oh, here's a big guy that's goofy. Let's go play with uh, Uncle Nutsy for an hour. Yeah, but you're not a rock uh, creature. No, I don't know. Some days, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be really weird for you. <laughs> But for a big character like that, um, he basically comes in and decides, you know, I'm going to make the best of it. And he basically sits down and uh, the kids jump all over him. They certainly have a good time. Mm -hmm. um, at the end, of course, the the uh, mother says, yeah, I, I don't have any money to pay you for this. And so, you know, Concrete makes the best of it, right? reaps his vengeance by putting the car up on top of the garage i that's that is very very good storytelling once again here where we we can understand this point of view of this person who has been frustrated by the situation and i really like the moment quite late in the in this in the series maybe the seventh or eighth issue um we get this sort of introduction, this reintroduction to concrete. And it says, life has been full for Ronald Lithgow since his brain was transplanted into the inhumanly strong, keen-eyed body in which he is known as concrete. And then it talks about his adventures for a moment. And then it says, riding the crazy wave of celebrity, concrete has become one of those media grotesques viewed as both sublimely silly and terribly hip. Concrete is in and i just i love that term media grotesque and i felt like so much of this whole series is really looking in the late 80s at the topic of misinformation disinformation media structures that is so central to how we're thinking about the world today in our uber connected globalized world but this is sort of a prescient look at how very central that is to become i, I think that is why the connection to washington was so important with the mm -hmm. because they created what uh, in effect was a public relations campaign 
And the idea was to so oversaturate the market with him that he would be able to exist because he wouldn't show up someplace as a monster. He would be like, oh, yeah, he's here again because he's showing up everywhere. He's boring people to tears. In fact, that was one of the, the statements to him. Like, when you go get the interview, don't make it too interesting. Yeah, you know, keep it. And of course, he does. He makes it interesting. But well, at, at yeah. least initially, it, it wasn't. And around that time, at least late 90, uh, 80s, that was when Batman was released. And you remember, we get like a, a wave of, I mean, what was it, two or three years worth of merchandise that was just unbelievable saturating the market, boring you out of the market, become passe because you you have been um, thrown out in, in front of the market in every place you could be. That sort of brings us to this moment that I really wanted your opinions on, which is when he's doing a talk show and Anonymous comes on and does this sort of comedy routine about him. And then Concrete, who's like a thousand pounds over seven feet tall, stands up and says, all right, Anonymous, I'm going to take off your giant moose mask. And then there's this panel right in the middle of the page that's so powerful. Please, dear God, no, I beg you, says Anonymous. And then you've got a speech bubble that's just a question mark and an exclamation point. And then at the bottom, it says, it is one of those peculiar, funny, scary moments that are the special province of unscripted television. Concrete is frozen by the naked terror in Anonymous's voice. And then he ends up not unmasking him, like showing some humanity there. And, and that's that's the whole story, isn't it? This is the great human conundrum. The what, who are we? How do we interact with each other? When we see something like fear in another's eyes, do we react in a way that is kind, or or do we just go ahead with the the vengeance that he was trying to bring upon Anonymous? This is the the idea of potentially punching down mm -hmm. at people um, that. There's a grace to life, um, and the, in fact, this could be a lesson for everyone to be a little more generous with the people around them. Even when you are sort of the target of the, um, the humor or of the, I don't know, trying to uh, disgrace you or dishonor you, um, just recognizing that you don't have all perfect information on all that uh, on, on what's going around everything. And once you, because they, they eventually do show him on mass, right? He is this disfigured person. And that may have been part of where the humor came from um, was a way of dealing with it and why he chose to wear a mask. But they show him only to the reader, not to the television audience. I Cor think, correct. Which correct. was the importance. So, <laughs> so anyway, it was just this kind of interesting moment. This and that interesting when, when you're very, very powerful, you, 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 people could destroy people. I mean, once again, Ron has a special knowledge. He he worked in Washington. He he knows how some parts of it work in different ways. He's in Hollywood. Um, same thing. He knows how you could take away the the veneer and get to the underbelly and um sometimes it's you know it could be it could be really destructive 
there's a, a real depth to what Paul Chadwick was able to bring to us with this story of this concrete character. So one of the real joys of this um, story was you get to learn a little bit about where things come from, like the Guinness Book of World Records, how that got started. <laughs> and I had no idea how that got started. I didn't remember it from first read, um, but it sounds like Guinness Beer um, mm -hmm. put together a book of world records. And I don't know, as a kid, Steve, did you have a copy of the Guinness Book of World Records? Oh, yeah. The Guinness Book of World Records is huge in our library. The kids love the idea of finding out this knowledge. And that was the idea of the Guinness Book was to stop those arguments at the bar. Here's all of the answers. Here's the trivia that you need to know to get to the answer. And, and it came to be this thing about extreme adventure instead, isn't it? It's it's. What's the appeal of that extreme adventure in in this story and in in uh, our world today? Who can eat the most hot dogs? Well, there's a book okay. that says that. Uh, <laughs> well, the hot dog eating contest is next week. That's an but, extreme uh, adventure I could do with that. But <laughs> it's on my calendar. No, but I think like this idea of like where do we find the limit of human ability, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and and also what's our relationship to nature right where are where are the places that humans and nature clash you know mount tops of mountains bottoms of oceans um camping space camping exactly <laughs> well i think william shatner when he went to outer space uh -huh. and came back he had something to say about his experience up there it's it's dead up there yeah. i mean he really it, it really you understand the difference between life and the absence of life is yeah. what he felt. Great yeah. Canadian. Just <laughs> <laughs> Chip, thank you for bringing us this interesting, interesting analysis into humanity, looking at our lives from, you know, what if this is a big, what if story, what if you lived this life instead of yours, how would you get through it? And, and what does that do for your thinking for your life? Really well put together book. That's concrete volume one depths by Paul Chadwick. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. Uh, there's 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 plenty of things happening in the world. Let's talk about Elon Musk some more. Steve, let's get back in time to MTV with Celebrity Deathmatch. <laughs> Pam, do you remember Celebrity Deathmatch? Are you aware of this? It was an animated claymation sort of uh, presentation where celebrities uh, represented in clay would fight each other to the death. Oh my goodness. So, you know, I grew up in Canada and we watched Musique Plus and Much Music, which was the Canadian version. And I don't think we had that. <laughs> <laughs> well, in real life, Steve, well, I mean, it could be a kind well, of a joke. Well, but Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg agreed to hold a cage fight, Steve. And apparently that might happen where they will actually fist fight each other uh, for supremacy of the social media moguls. Oh, boy. But what what 2023? This is kind of a joke that they were playing on each other. Um, right. Uh, Musk said that he was going to try the walrus move, Steve. That's where he just lays on top of them. 
<laughs> and eats foods such as seals. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Steve, uh, there's yeah. a lot of vegan hamburgers out there. But you know what? How does this fit into ethical uh, food when they're lab-grown animals? Right. We've got some lab-grown chicken coming to the United States soon. And this is, you know, some some of the science that has been looking at what are the ethics of raising chickens? We, we've been talking about this for a decade. Heifer cries could be human cries, Steve. It's a little Smith's right there for you. Bring a tear to your eyes. Uh, meat is murder. So the question is, if it's lab-grown, there is no, um, there is no brain. There is no pain. So um, the chicken comes first, not the egg. Well, which the meat comes first. The question is: We have Upside Foods and Eat Just. These are two California-based companies. They are going to be bringing lab-grown meat to your grocery. Steve, will you be trying it? Uh, absolutely. I I'm all for uh, trying to find the right degree of animals and animal cruelty and uh protein in our diet that we need i am a big fan of the impossible burgers i do enjoy those and i look forward to a future where we can find that that nice middle ground between uh the problems that we have in the food industry and the science that we have how about you pam pam are you, are you interested in, in lab oh, absolutely. meat yeah i'm i'm a beyond burger person rather than impossible burger but it's all yeah, good and um right. i feel like i've read a lot of science fiction lately um and watched like on the orville um emily st john mandel sea of tranquility just recently where people in like the 23rd 24th century they're like shocked and appalled that we ever ate animals. We, we're learning so much about the mental lives, the dream lives of our companion species on this earth that I do think like, we, we need to do something. And it's not keep 33 billion chickens, by the way, that's how many chickens are alive in the world today, um, alive for, for our consumption. So yes, big fan. <laughs> And just how, if you look at what a, a chicken was, say, 30, 40 years ago, yes. and what a chicken is now, a chicken couldn't exist um, in the wild at this point, right. because we have designed that chicken for, for its meat. They, they they just couldn't carry the weight. Um, the they were, chicken they were, of tomorrow. I am now putting that in the show notes. They were, uh, they were little dinosaurs, and now they're big, fat dinosaurs. Um but anyway, I, I think this is fascinating. If eventually we're going to Bob Lagoa, where no person has gone before, maybe mm -hmm. a trip to Mars or something, um, with Elon Musk, assuming he survives Mark Zuckerberg um, and the crane, because you know he's going to kick him. But anyway, assuming that he survives and we get a trip to Mars, there's going to have to be a way to create foods. And... We cannot carry that many chickens with us, for sure. And the egg does not have to come first. The humans don't arrive, but the chickens do, and they populate Mars. There's your story. There's a kid with a, a copy of that in his pocket at an airport right now, Pam. You have to find that kid. <laughs> Pam, thank you so much for coming in again. Our monthly book club, uh, we learned so much, and I appreciate you and how much joy you have brought to us this month. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. I feel somewhat learned, Steve.
wait, wait till you watch the chicken of tomorrow short that i put into the show notes then you, then you'll lose all of that <laughs> oh good i don't know chip i think we have enough information to survive another week what do you think only if we can come back next week steve what do you think pam absolutely wonderful we would love to hear from you give us a call or a text our phone number is 805-4104-TMS our website is too much scrolling.com or email is too much scrolling at gmail.com we're on twitter and instagram and facebook we're on spotify and apple Podcasts and youtube and you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of too much scrolling i want to thank you again for listening to too much scrolling i'm steve foder i'm chip hessenflow southern chip hessenflow and i'm pam bedar we'll see you in the future Ha 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 ha! Canadian! Oh! <laughs>